Hello, and welcome to the Aquarius Podcast, your source for interviews with people from all across the tropical fish keeping hobby. I'm your host, Randy Reed. Please subscribe and check out all previous episodes on Podbean, Stitcher, Google Play, iTunes, or AquarisPodcast.com. You can also check out additional content by following the Aquarius Podcast Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter accounts. If you like what you hear, please rate and leave a review for the show. Enjoy the interview. Today's date is Monday, April 16th, 2018. My guest today is Matt Shower. Matt is a bottom dweller fanatic specializing in Calisithidae and Loracaridae and the founder of NBM Aquatics. He's spoken at numerous fish clubs on catfish, as well as having attended many of the catfish-specific conventions. Matt is currently managing close to 70 tanks with almost 70 species of catfish. Matt, welcome to the Aquarius Podcast. Thanks, Randy. I'm glad to be on. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for uh, for joining me. You are in central time, so you're a couple hours ahead of me, so it's a little bit later in the day, and uh, I really appreciate you staying up a little bit late on a uh, on a school night, if you will, to uh, stay up and talk about fish with me. No, not a problem. I can talk about fish all day. Yeah, a couple hours different and a couple degrees cooler out here. I'll tell you that. <laughs> I think you might be a few degrees cooler than me right now, that's for certain. Uh, you guys are getting hit with uh, more snow, I think, in your area, right? Yeah, there was uh, about two feet an hour and a half north of me, and I was lucky enough to only get about an inch or so on top of about an inch or so of ice. Oh, good times. Spring just doesn't want to uh, doesn't want to show up yet for that part of the country or the East Coast. Yeah, it works out well for a fish breeder, though. They love those storm fronts when you, when you couple that with a big water change. Oh, there you go. Yeah, that sounds like a, a pro tip right there. All right, Matt, so... Uh, let's just start off with your origin story. So how did you get started in the aquarium hobby? Well, when I was a kid, my parents actually had a shop in, uh, just on the north side of Milwaukee that had 70 tanks, all freshwater, and they also did um, exotic birds, macaws, and stuff like that. So we had a handful of tanks at home. And it was from when I was like four to six or seven years old. So memories are a bit sketchy. I remember my dad getting bit by a red belly piranha. I remember being in some pretty uh, creepy dungeon type basements, going to wholesalers and importers to get fish for the shop. Um, But all in all, I don't remember a whole lot. I can remember my parents breeding common crebenzas at the house and breeding some mollies. And like I said, when the store was, when I was six or seven, the mall the store was in closed down and due to the cost of trying to move the store, uh, the parents just opted to close it up. And then the tanks in the house slowly dwindled. So by the time I was 10 or so, there were no tanks at all. Uh, so the hobby kind of started early, but then from when I was 10 to when I was 26, so that would have been 2006, I didn't have any tanks. And a roommate left a 75 behind, and I decided I wanted a simple community tank planted. And things just kind of spread from there. Yeah, once you get that one tank again, it just uh, it just snowballs. Uh, to take a step back, I, and again, I know you're real young, um, but do you remember what got your parents involved in having a fish store um, with exotic pets t- to begin with? Did they ever share that with you? Uh, I'm not sure. My parents, my whole family was kind of just animal crazy in general. Uh, my grandmother did everything from the miniature horses and goats and chickens and just everything you can imagine 
Um, and my parents, when I, when I was really young, to, before I can really remember, there were goats and there was a duck pond in the backyard. I grew up kind of out in the sticks. So there were always a lot of pets, um, not your typical cat-dog type pets either. And um, I don't know, the mentality of my family seemed to be don't get one. If you get two, you can, you know, at least break even on what you bought if you were able to reproduce them. So uh, they were far bigger into the birds than the fish. I think the fish were just an easy addition into the shop. Gotcha. That's uh, that's very interesting that, you know, a lot of times whatever the parents are, are really passionate into, um, it can almost be that negative effect on the children. But to hear that um, you know, it sounds like you had a pretty pleasant experience, you know, your memories of the fish store, um, and that, you know, a couple decades later, you know, you, you took it upon yourself or you were given a tank rather, and, and you wanted to set up a fish tank. So it wasn't like it was a, a damaging experience and, you know, anything that the parents did, you wanted to stay as far away from as you could. Yeah, no, you probably went through that phase in the teens, you know, how that goes, but you know, it all comes full circle. Yeah. Very cool. So, uh, from there, from that uh, 75 gallon tank, um, you know, what were your what were your first major steps to kind of get you to where you are now? Well, it started um, 75, and uh, the first uh, fry I ever found were the uh, Sotheby's half beak, um, which is a live bear, and I was just sitting on the couch watching the tank in one eye and the TV in the other and watched these baby fish coming out of the female half-beak and ran around if I found a bucket to put the babies in because the males were eating the babies as fast as she was letting them go. And then um, I had some peppered quarries, corridors, paleatus, uh, and I did a big water change one day and came home from work the next day and couldn't figure out how there was duckweed stuck all over the glass, and it was quarry eggs. So then there was another container and another bucket and another tank to raise quarry fry. And it's just kind of tumbled from there. And in 2007, 2008, I moved from central Wisconsin to northern Illinois and didn't know a lot of people and and kind of a recluse in ways and didn't have anything better to do but scour the internet, buying fish and scour on Craigslist looking for tanks. And it just continued to grow. So at that point, um, were you involved with like your local fish club and like, I guess, what was your outlet for all of these fish that you're now starting to breed, whether it was, um, accidental or on purpose? Uh, once I moved into Northern Illinois, uh, they're very lacking in local stores and the nearest club was an hour plus either direction. So my major outlet was really Aquabid. Um, I would make tracks down to the, well, that was later on where I started going to the greater Chicago swaps and different swap meets and stuff like that to start to offload some of my offspring. And and at this point, do you feel like um, as far as your uh, number of tanks that you have, are you kind of at your pinnacle or are you still, um, you know, are you still a ways away from your pinnacle in terms of being a breeder and the number of tanks and the number of species that you have? Well, I'm, I moved again two years ago, uh, 18 months ago, and fortunately the garage was insulated and heated, but I wasn't able to really lay it out the way I wanted to, and you've got to move that many tanks. Um, you just kind of make sure they get moved and that they've got filtration and everything else. And um, I 
have a second garage detached that's just stud walls that's going to be insulated, plumbed, racks put exactly where I want them, um, overflow systems, and stuff like that. So I actually will probably double in volume from where I'm at now, and that's probably going to be the end of it. it. It's hard to say. I keep kind of changing my designs as I find a fish that I want and go, well, my design has all 20-gallon tanks, and this fish needs a 125, so I need to find a rack that I can, you know, I need a rack in this room that can hold a couple 125s, and so then back to the drawing board. Yeah, I can imagine. Well, it sounds like, uh, you know, it sounds like you are, are, are doing it the right way, at least. And, you know, you're going through multiple iterations. So, you know, I couldn't imagine taking the, the time and the investment to set up, you know, what would roughly be 140 tanks uh, and then come to find out that, you know, there, there's a, a serious, you know, design change that you want to make halfway through your install. So um, I, I guess time is on your side on this aspect as far as planning goes. Yeah, it is, and I've been fortunate enough to have Ian Fuller and Hans Evers and stuff in the fish room, and both of them said, you know, the fish are healthy, everything looks good. Take your time on this fish room and do it exactly the way you want it. If you rush through it, you're going to have regrets on what you did, and it's just a pain in the neck to go back and uh, try to revamp once it's built. Yeah, so so on that note, then, um, your focus on catfish. I mean, I guess some of my initial questions or the questions that, that pop into my mind anytime I, you know, listen to a speaker at the fish club or I, I watch a presentation online, um, when people when people start diving deep and they start specializing in one particular species. So for you, the bottom dwellers, the catfish, um, I guess what is it that initially drew you to them? I don't know. I mean... In the local shops where I was, the only thing you saw were the big common plecos and occasionally a bristle nose. Um, and then I went into a big big store in Milwaukee and saw some long fin bristle nose, and that kind of got me into it a little bit. Then I really started looking around on the internet and just was astounded at how many different species and types of catfish there are, and catfish that stay small they are totally suitable for the aquarium. And there's just hundreds and hundreds of colors and shapes and sizes that all work well in the aquarium. And they say that you kind of, you know, you pick a fish that fits your personality. And, you know, the sickler guys, for the most part, are kind of loud and boisterous. And most of the catfish guys are pretty laid back. And, you know, I think that has a lot to do with it, too. Yeah, so that that's an interesting train of thought there. It's almost like uh, people and their dog, uh, the breeds of dogs that they keep. You could almost, um, you know, to some extent, kind of match the owner with the personality, uh, you know, and the breed as well. So uh, to hear that, you know, your observations are that sometimes you see that extend itself into the fish world. Um, so I guess right now, I mean, my current focus species, I guess, would be rainbow fish. So I'm not really sure. Um, I don't know. Maybe I'm just I'm. I'm moving fast i'm crazy and i like to flash color every once in a while <laughs> interesting yeah i don't know it's yeah interesting because yeah. when i have, when we have house guests or whatever especially when the girlfriend friends are here you know they walk around the fish room and ask me why i have all these empty tanks <laughs> <laughs> you know i i'm putting a 265 display in the kitchen and the first thing she said is you're gonna get swimming fishes <laughs> yeah fish that you <laughs> can actually see yeah, something you can see. You know, in their defense, though, the Cory catfish are really cool, right? I mean, they're, 
Um, you know, they, they've got a lot of personality to them and, and they're pretty active, right. For the, for, uh, for being a catfish. Um, on the other hand, you know, the, the sucker mouse cat, sucker mouth catfish, um, you know, they, they, they tend to hide and, uh, <laughs> you tend to have the empty aquarium look. Yeah, for sure. The quarry cats, each species has their own personality. Some of them are, are still really shy and more active, you know, right at the end of the day or first thing in the morning. Um, they're not all as outgoing as the uh, albino cats you see in the stores, but, you know, there's so many shapes and sizes just to the quarries themselves. With You know, you're, we're looking at close to 400 species, I believe. Yeah, there are definitely a lot of them. And they go by the, um, was it the C? It's not It's not an L. It's, it's like the L number system, right? It's, what is it, CR? Uh, CW and C. Okay, C and CW, um, okay. Yeah, so the C numbers were created by Dats Magazine when Hans Evers was with it over in Germany. And then when Dats dissolved, uh, there were still all these fish being found. So Ian Fuller of Corridorus World started um, his new numbering system using the CW codes. And is there any replication across the list, or any duplication rather, or is his list just a continuation on the uh, on the original list? He tried not to duplicate. He tried to continue on. There have been found that there, you know, there were some codes that were given to regional variants. You know, a fish found here looked a little bit different than a fish found 25 miles downstream, or. And so it ended up getting a different code. There were a few codes that were assigned that, you know, were later determined that they were actually a described species already. So there is some duplication within that. Oh, interesting. But for the most part, he tried to keep it uh, it separate or a new list continuation, rather. Yeah. Okay, cool. Uh, And then as far as, you know, keeping catfish in general, I mean, what has surprised you the most about keeping catfish? The, The variation. Um, you just, you think you've got, you know, you, you spawn a couple of species of like Cory cat and you think you've seen it all. And then, you, you know, this one didn't lay its eggs on the glass. It laid all its eggs on the bottom of a leaf or it laid its eggs in the sand. Um, you know, plecos, you know, when I first got into the soccer mouth, species i dealt with mostly bristles and hype and citrus and stuff and had no idea that there were species out there that laid their eggs on the glass and there were species out there that carry their eggs around in their mouths and so that just the, you think that they're all going to behave and act pretty much the same and they all b- behave differently wow that's interesting um as far as you know most i would say um you know, most people listening to this probably have Corydoras or bristlenose plecos in, in one take or another. Uh, but if we were to kind of focus down on the Corydoras, um, and in general, I guess the species that you would typically see um, in the trade readily available, so your your pandas, your salt and peppers, um, your dwarf quarries, um, now, and maybe even within just those few that I named, it, this could vary. But I guess what would be your breeding tips um, or your breeding lessons learned if somebody actively wanted to try to breed those fish? Uh, the first le- uh, tip would be, um, especially once you get out of the clearly identified, is be very careful of what you're looking at um, in the stores. There tends to be 
a mix of fish that come in from the wild, so you really need to pay close attention when you're picking out your fish, or you may end up, if you just tell the kid at the store to catch five fish, you may end up with five different species. I did some transshipping for a while, for example, and brought in a box of Corridors Adulti, which is typically available. And in that box was actually Corridors Adulti, Corridors Duplicaris, and C121. There were three different species within that box. So, you know, had that box gone to a store and somebody just walked in and asked for six fish, they may not get six of the same fish. But from the outward appearance, though, they looked fairly similar, or were they were the uh, the differences more obvious than that? Uh, they look very similar. Uh, Corridorus adolfi typically has a narrower black stripe up its back than Duplicaris. Um, Duplicaris has serrations on the front pectoral fin, which you really can't see unless you look at it with a jeweler's loop or something, a magnifying device of some kind. And uh, C121 actually has a clear plate right behind the gills that gives it kind of a rosy-looking cheek. Otherwise, the, they're the same black fish or white fish with a black stripe down the body and an orange blotch on their head. And then would you say, so if somebody wanted to, to really uh, specialize in on one species, would, do you feel like Aquabid, um, now granted there is the seller rating system, but do you think that that's a fairly reliable source for somebody to... Um, get an accurately described uh, fish? Uh, yes and no. I mean, there's a lot of sellers out there, and it, to say with 100% certainty, um, I would say no. I, you really got it. The rating system helps a lot. There's some hybrids floating around out there we know about, and then there's still a lot of, there's a lot of stores that are utilizing hybrids or utilizing um, wild-caught fish and aren't necessarily sorting themselves. So at the end of the day, it really does come down to the hobbyists to take a good close look at their fish and get them properly identified. Yeah, it's it's almost like, uh, you know, and not to use a harsh analogy, but garbage in, garbage out. So if you, if you buy something and you think it's one species, you breed it, and you're going to pass it along as though it is that species. So as far as the information goes, um, you're just going to pass along that, that inaccurate information. Absolutely. So then let, let's say, um, you know, we, we know that we have, let's say we, we know we have the Adolphi um, for that particular species. And I guess what general breeding tips do you have um, for quarries that tends to kind of transcend the different species of Corydora? Um, quality foods is a big one. Um, you know, getting them well conditioned, a variety of foods. And then once you know they're in good condition and the females are starting to plump up really well, then the most typical trigger is to do water changes that cool off the water, um, especially, as I mentioned, at the beginning of the program, if you do that when storm fronts are coming through, there's a lot of debate on whether that really works or if it's barometric pressure. Um, but I find it very successful if you start hammering out water changes when there's storms coming through. As I mentioned, the live black ones are great conditioning for uh, corridors, and they you can't feed them constantly because they are very high protein, but they're excellent for getting them conditioned up and triggering a spawn. Gotcha. And would you say, um, you know, if you don't have access to the live black worms, would a, a high-quality frozen food or a high-quality uh, pellet, would that suffice as well? High-quality pellets will suffice for most of your 
more common species, um, frozen foods in uh, moderation. Uh, I have mixed feelings on frozen black uh, bloodworms, but frozen tubaflex I do use quite a bit. I use the freeze-dried tubaflex, um, and I've had success with both of those if you don't have access to or are leery about using the line blackworms. Okay, very cool. And then uh, I guess some of the another question I have is uh, typically, um, and I know you said this could vary, but a corridor species that will lay their eggs on the glass. Um, and, and corridors, those are a species where you will need to pull the eggs. Is that correct? Regardless yes, of if they, they lay, do, if they it, do not parent at all. Okay. Um, in fact, uh, they may even eat their eggs, predate their own eggs. Um, so typically, I, I will pull the eggs or move the adults, whichever is most convenient at the time usually it's poly eggs yeah i was gonna say i just had to uh switch around the uh the substrate in my, my main aquarium with the corydoras and I, I think certainly probably moving the eggs would be much easier than moving parents any day at least with the corydoras in my experience yeah. um so then as far as um extracting the eggs from the glass i guess if they laid on the underside of a leaf or you know um on on another like fixed surface that you can remove from your tank uh that would be more ideal but if they're on the glass um, what do you what what's your method of actually getting it off the glass? Uh, it kind of depends on how the eggs are on the glass. Earlier today, I had corridors whites when I spawned. They lay a very large egg in relation to cori eggs, and I was able to just gently roll those up the glass a little bit, and then they stuck to my finger, and I was able to roll them into a specimen container. Um, Eggs that are packed really tight together on the glass, it's more difficult to do that. And in those cases, I generally would use a razor blade or a like a plastic credit card or something along those lines and just gently scrape them up so they roll onto the credit card and then roll them off the credit card or blade on into the container that you're going to use to hatch them out. Gotcha. And so as long as you're being you know slow and steady, you know, you're not really going to damage the egg and everything will be fine? Yeah, no, you should be fine. Um, Unless you're trying to pull the eggs within a minute or two of them being hatched, they actually harden up fairly quickly. Oh, interesting. So I guess uh, once once you see um, some cori spawning, you've got eggs on the glass. Will you give it a, a you know a few minutes or whatever the time is for them to harden up, or will you instinctively just jump in there and pull the eggs as soon as you know they're there? I typically will wait till I'm unless I see them predating their eggs or. Uh, something else trying to eat their eggs i will typically wait till they're done spawning i try my best not to disrupt them during the spawn okay and, and typically how long was that typically oh that it can range anywhere from a couple hours to you know, you know over a period of two or three days oh gotcha okay but i mean it is it is it probably safe if they're done spawning uh, a couple hours is probably a safe time as long as they're not predating on them to let them sit and then pull them? Oh, absolutely. Okay, gotcha. All right, and then so just to follow this down the uh, down the rabbit hole, so you've pulled your eggs, you've put them in your specimen container. Um, is there anything special that you like to do with the eggs? <coughs> and then my next question would be, um, on average, you know, when would you expect to see some wigglers out of those eggs? Uh, wigglers typically four to six days. Um, I treat my eggs differently depending on the species. I've found some species do well with like using an alder, alder cone and the tannins from an alder cone to uh, prevent fungus 
I found other species, other cori eggs do not react well to alder cones at all. So at that point, I end up using like mifflin blue to prevent fungus, and then I generally aerate them. On a new species, I will actually, depending on how many eggs I get, I'll break it into three containers. I'll have one where I do absolutely nothing at all but aerate, one where I use an alder cone, and one where I use methylene blue because you don't put all your eggs in one basket, especially on the first spawn. Yeah, it definitely. And so that's kind of one of my, uh, you know, one of the other general thoughts that I have or questions as well, and not just specific to uh, to catfish, but, you know, anytime somebody um, gets a really rare species, whether it was something that was, you know, cost them a lot of money, or it was just something that they had to wait a really long time for, like how nerve wracking of an experience is that, you know, just from the moment you get the fish to when they finally spawn, you know, you get the conditions right, and now you have eggs, and just how nerve-wracking is that, you know, is that time period? Uh, it can be very nerve-wracking, and once you find those eggs, the excitement, every time I spawn, every time I get eggs from new fish, there's a little bit of excitement, I still jump in the fish room every time, so, you know, if that goes away, then I need to look into doing something else. Um, yeah, I mean, you're going on, uh, let's see here, if, if I recall what you said, um, you know, at least, a, you know, 15 years of kind of serious, um, a, you know, a serious breeding, and to hear that you're still getting excited and jumping up and down in the fish room is pretty cool. Yeah, to, I, you know, I really expanded in 2010, um, and that's that's really when I jumped up, and uh, we're kind of backtracking here a little bit, but... Uh, in 2010, I went to the All Aquarium Catfish Convention for the first time and met a lot of the people that I keep in contact with on a regular basis, and that's what really got me into it. So between 2010 and their their uh, convention in 2012, I went out there with nothing in 2010 and went out there with like 25 species of tank-raised catfish to sell and trade in 2012. Wow, that's impressive. But nonetheless, though, I mean, still, you know, 10 years into it and you're still getting really excited. Um, you know, to me, that's very, that's very promising. And that just shows that, um, you know, I feel, I feel the same way. And again, I share my experience with my, um, breeding, breeding for karma tank. And, you know, I, I still keep seeing these little guppy fry in here and he's swimming in the guppy grass and that's, it's exciting. And, um, I think I'm going to get a new species of, of rainbow fish here and I want to start breeding them. And, and I know the moment that they start laying in those spawning mops and I pull those and I've got eggs, that's, that's going to be very exciting for me. Yeah. Be careful. It, it's a never ending cycle. I went to a swap just to hang out with some friends and stuff on Sunday and came home with four more species of corridors. So <laughs> <laughs> no, definitely. I mean, it is, it is alive and well, and, uh, you know, my wife doesn't know this, but I'm eyeing the uh, the other space in our garage, and I've already got plans of uh, building that out and insulating. But uh, you know, she doesn't listen to these podcasts, so she'll never know. <laughs> <laughs> all right, Matt. So I want to ask you. Um, all right, so you have obviously you know many many species of catfish currently, and I'm sure that you've probably you know kept some that you're not keeping now. So you've you've probably kept well over 70 species of catfish. But is there you know I, I called it an Eleanor catfish or a unicorn catfish? Is there that one species that you've got your eye on and that you just haven't had a chance to uh, to to breed yet or to or to have? Well, I don't know. I, there's so many. Um, there's a lot of catfish out there I'd love to work with yet. Um, I, I picked up some Asian catfish at the uh, Cataclysm in Madison last fall, um, Batasio fluvitatis, and they've been kind of neat to work with. And I picked up some 
micros are seen Adonis catfish. So it, you know, the one unicorn, I, I'd love to get some chameleon whiptails when I finally get some space for them. Uh, they're fairly ready, readily available um, from a corridor standpoint. CW004, also called the Ancestor, or CW111 called Corridor Zabrini. Um, those are just stunning quarries. The, you know, they're going for anywhere from 300 to to $1,000 a fish over in Japan right now. Wow. So they're definitely high on the unicorn list because they don't even make it into the U.S. That is incredible. I'm actually going to Google that right now if you want to keep on talking. What Which uh, CW is that? Uh, CW004. Um, there's actually some available in the U.S. right now. It's two for five hundred. Oh, don't worry. I don't. Don't worry. I won't be your competition on this one. I just. Want, yeah. I just want to admire. And so back to that whiptail catfish, right? I, I think most of us, you know, we're, we're very familiar with the Corydoras, and we all, you know, kind of know the the charm and the appeal of them. Uh, but these more exotic um, catfish, like a whiptail catfish, um, you know, for you, I guess, what what, what puts that on your list? It's unique. Um, some of it's just the fact that there's not a lot of people out there working on working with them. And, you know, that makes it kind of, you know, that puts that challenge bar in front of you, makes things a little bit different. Um, one of the first kind of unique fish that I worked with was a sucker mouse species uh, with the genus Spectrocanthicus, so Spectrocanthicus marinus. And, you couldn't find any information about them except for a little blurb on Planet Catfish and a couple of registered keepers. There were some fry photos, so you knew they'd been spawned. But, you know, to put to knock that one on the belt was pretty exciting. Um, so some of it's just to do something new, to do something that, you know, a lot of hobbyists haven't seen and try to get some of these more unique things into the hobby. Yeah, so kind of that explorer's mentality, right? Yeah, yeah, when uh, in my conversation with Greg Steves, you know, I think that was one of the points that uh, that you know he was very passionate about as well as you know just the the doing something that somebody hasn't done before, um, especially in a hobby like this. Now, granted, you know they're discovering new species all the time, uh, but nonetheless, like the ones that are available to us. I mean, after you've been in, in it for a while, I don't want to say it can get monotonous, but to, to have that challenge to be able to be the one uh, the first to to breed that new fish, and maybe not even so much because you know, there, there's potential that it could be the next CW0004, um, but just to be the one to, to like you said, um, you know, contribute and, and, and have that, uh, all that information that you can then share with other people. Yeah, absolutely. And it's a lot easier to do. And so, you know, I'd love to get into writing articles and stuff like that more, but you can only write so many articles about so many fish. And I feel like with some of the corridors and stuff like that, it's, you know, what can you said that hasn't been said in some regards. Well, like with Spectroganticus, you know, I wrote an article on that that ended up on Planet Catfish that, you know, it was really fun and enjoyable to write. And, you know, I didn't feel like I was repeating something that somebody else said in a different article about a different version of that species. Yeah, no, interesting. That's definitely... um. I can definitely see where you're coming from on that one. So, so on the note of, you know, there is a lot of information out there, um, and especially with the internet and how readily available information is, but also how easy it is to, to put out information. 
Um, in your opinion, and we'll, we'll always preface this kind of question with in your opinion, uh, or the world according to Matt, what do you think are some of the misconceptions out there about catfish or about corridors in particular uh, that, that, you know, in your opinion, are incorrect and that you might want to dispel? Um, in my opinion, well, one of the more common misconceptions with catfish in general is they're cleaner fish. And that is absolutely false. When you get into the more exotic plecos, um, Pleco Barbie worded it best when she said, you'll never find a beauty queen that doubles as a maid. Um, <laughs> so first off, uh, Pleco Barbie, is that is that who you're quoting? Yes. <laughs> and you'll never find a beauty queen that doubles as a maid. That is fantastic. Um, so, you know, they're not cleaner fish. Very few of the species of Pleco actually eat algae. And once they're once they grow past juvenile, they're even less interested in algae. So you have to target feed these fish when they're in your community tank. Um, you can't just rely on them eating the leftover foods and waste of the other fish. That's not the way it works. That's probably the biggest misconception, especially with new aquarists about catfish, because they they're typically sold in your stores as clean as a cleanup crew or cleaner fish. Yeah, and, and kind of those, well, like the three buckets that the catfish tend to fall in, right? It's at least, let, let, let's say with the plecos, um, you, you know, there's your beauty queens, your zebra plecos, and your leopard frog plecos, all those guys. They, they actually, um, protein is a good part of their diet, right? Um, it's a majority yeah, of their diet. Yeah, yeah. And, then you have, and then you have this other category that um, eats wood. Um, not algae, but wood as a main part of their diet. And then you kind of have the third where it's, eh, you know, vegetable matter. Maybe they eat a little bit of algae. But it, it, to your point, though, it does span, right? And it's not that, you know, oh, yeah, that 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 thing right there, that all it does is it just wants to munch on, you know, diatom algae or green algae or whatever. Mm-hmm. I mean, there are the fish out there that do that. Um, some of the smaller whiptail species, your autocyclist type species, you know, they'll munch on that green algae and diatoms all day, every day. Right. And they'll be totally content doing it. Yeah, yeah. Well, and I guess I wonder how much, too, our, our propensity and, and our, you know, the fact that we overfeed our aquarium so much, and if these fish are in a community tank, which they probably are for most people, I don't I don't think there's many non-hardcore aquarists, especially those that are then specializing in catfish, that will have a species-only, um, you know, pleco tank. So so going back to my, to my ramble, it's, you know, they're in a community tank. Uh, it's probably being overfed. Uh, and then they're being exposed to um, different sources of food, and maybe they then convert to that and are like, yeah, no, instead of eating this algae, maybe I'd rather eat some of these wafers that are always falling down or some of this uh, extra flake food, and maybe they end up getting conditioned on that, and they revert away from eating algae or um, any of the other things that normally they might eat. Yes, that happens. Another thing that tends to happen is uh, they develop intestinal issues depending on what that food is if a fish is more accustomed to grazing on wood and algae and things of that nature and they're getting a lot of protein they end up with bloat issues and just intestinal blockage because they're they're not built to process the protein they're getting that's left over it's also an issue with uh cory cats if they get too much protein and a lot of people take like a stirred bay cory or something like that that likes hot water and keep them in with discus where they're getting a lot of beef heart and stuff like that and then they develop issues 
Yeah, it's it's almost like us humans, right? Like we would love to eat ice cream and cheeseburgers all day long, but uh, we're not exactly built to eat just ice cream and cheeseburgers all day long. Absolutely. Very diet's important with any species of fish. So then, you know, one of the hot topics, if you will, out there or, or a point of contention that there's, you know, that there's some back and forth on um, is Corydoras, uh, their barbels, uh, putting them in a tank with a substrate like EcoComplete or like a non-sand sub- substrate that'll maybe have some gravel um, or a substrate that might have some some sharper edges to it. Um, and, and so what is your opinion on that? Uh, it's actually a no-brainer for me. Um, if you go out and look for videos of quarry cats in the wild, they're on detritus and mulm and leaf litter and sand or some rounded river stone. There is no sharp gravel in the wild, really, especially in the river systems of the Amazon. For the most part, it's all, you know, it's been worn away by water for hundreds of years. And the barbell erosion is a very real thing. Um, Some quarries do dig more than others, but Ultimately, they all dig a little bit foraging for food, and putting them over a hard gravel or sharp gravel takes away a natural behavior that, you know, it's like it's like expecting a cat not to scratch, and, you know, instead of giving them a suitable place to do so. Yeah, no, I mean, very, very good points. Um, do you think in terms of Maybe the, so. There might be some behavior modification. Maybe it's something that. Um, well, maybe you're not even modifying their behavior. But do you do you think it's an, an impacting their quality of life overall? Do you think there's anything in terms of uh, maybe reducing the their lifespan? You know, on the worst case scenario. Oh, uh, the worst case scenario that they will lose their barbells entirely. Um, Typically, what happens is they just start to wear them away. Um, best case scenario is they just slowly wear their barbels away. Um, worst case scenario, they damage the barbels and then they become infected, and you end up losing a fish because that infection spreads to the rest of the fish. Um, usually, it's fungal that develops on the on the, dam- on the damaged barbels. Yeah, no, I mean, that makes sense. And again, you know, it's it's something that is a hot topic. And, um, you know, you sharing your opinion, uh, definitely appreciated. Uh, and, you know, maybe some people listening to this are, are convinced, maybe some people, maybe, <laughs> maybe they dig in, but nonetheless, just to get your take on that. Uh, thank you, Matt. Um, well, and, and if you're, you know, if you're hard set on that, you know, you see, and you see it occasionally in the loach community and with aquascaping being, because you mentioned eco-complete specifically, with aquascaping being such a hot thing now, it's not a big deal to cap it, or it wouldn't be a big deal, depending on the size of the tank, to put a small sand pit in as part of your aquascape, where they would have a place to do their, do some of their natural digging and natural behaviors. Yeah, and that actually, the, the sand pit idea, it does go very well with, you know, there's a lot of really nice aquascape designs and styles that do incorporate um, sand to one extent or another, whether it's, you know, a pit, if you will, or it's a path, but something to your point where you either cap your cap your sharper substrate um, or give them a place to, um, uh, to, to do their natural behavior and kind of forage around and dig in the sand. So circling back to, you know, talking about breeding, um, again, sticking to your opinion, you know, is there anything that, uh, that 
people do that may prevent the successful breeding of, of catfish, plecos, or corys? Uh, one of the things I think a lot of people do, well, I I think a lot of newer aquarists don't do the water changes that they really should be doing. I, I'm a firm believer in a lot of water changes. I do typically two a week on every tank I have. Um, I think that's one of the things. The other thing that the newer aquarist tends to do is they go out and they buy their heater and they get their filter and they set the tank up and they try to keep everything perfectly stable. You know, the temperature going in during a water change is the exact same temperature that as the water coming out. And in their natural environment, that's not the case. You know, they're despite being in, you know, the Amazon, there's still seasons. You know, there's wet seasons and dry seasons and cool waters running off the mountains and things like that that causes the water parameters and water temperatures to fluctuate and to I can't get real specific because it's different for each body of water but you know I think that's one of the things that a newer aquarist just tries to keep everything too stable to really get a good breeding yeah no I, I will say I use a python system uh hooked it up to my bathroom faucet and you know up until my past couple water changes I do I do weekly water changes um on all my tanks and I was, you know, I was very dead set on trying to match the temperature as much as possible. But uh, over the past couple water changes, I've actually just gone more to the hand method, um, airing a little bit on the cooler side, exactly for that point. You know, I, I keep reading articles and keep hearing content about, you know, the the, the rainy seasons and, um, you know, water running off mountainsides or, or just, you know, cooler water being introduced into the main body. So for me, like, I don't really mind it as much. And I guess... Um, what would be kind of a safe temperature swing, do you think? So, I mean, if the tank is normally in the, let's say, let's just pick a temperature, 78, um, you know, what, what do you feel like would be within reason you could swing, um, uh, have a temperature swing in your water change and still be safe? Um, watch your fish. Uh, that's the best advice I can give you. I mean, five degrees is definitely safe. You know, if you, if you go down five, even 10 um, generally you're pretty safe. Um, but usually the fish will tell you if, if they're, if it's starting to shock them a little bit. Um, if you watch them closely and with some of the quarries, you can go as extreme as 15, 20 degrees, uh, swing just based on the regions they're found in. Um, that's actually not abnormal. Yeah, and I guess it's important to note, too, that while the temperature of the water that you're putting into the system, you know, during your water change, maybe it's 10 degrees cooler, but you still probably have at least, you know, 50% of your water. I mean, maybe somebody's doing a 20% water change, but nonetheless, you like you already have um, a, a good amount of water in there that's already at your 78 degrees if we're sticking with that temperature um you know the glass is going to retain some of the temperature so you know while you may be putting in 10 degree water it's actually not going to be that instant you know 10 degree shock on them so um, you know knowing that these fish are, are resilient um and it may actually trigger some some uh, desirable behavior out of them yeah i mean if you think about it if, you, if you're at 70 degrees 78 degrees and you do a 50% water change with 70 degree water, your water should end up around 74. So you had a four degree drop. Yeah, no, definitely. Theoretically. <laughs> I mean, 
I don't. I'm not. Thermodynamics is yeah. not one of my strong suits. <laughs> I was gonna. I was gonna leave that alone. I, you never know. Somebody in Germany that with a with a master's in thermodynamics and you know hydrology may uh, may call us out on that one. Yeah, but hey, it makes thing. sense though. But no, I mean, just directionally, that makes sense. Um, yeah, and again, you know, these these fish, they're not. Uh, nature is not a. It's not a vacuum, right? Like there's swings and there's seasons and there's fluctuations and. Um, yeah, I mean, it's it, it's good for them because in your experience, you have seen that water changes when you have um, kind of s- simulated that you've triggered spawning behavior. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, but you still have, you got to know, you know, it depends on what fish you have and where it comes from. Um, you know, a lake catfish is not going to have the same fluctuations as a catfish found in a small stream. So yeah, do your research, know where it comes from, and let that help guide you when you do your water changes and you're doing temperature swings or you're trying to simulate a temperature swing. So let's uh, let's talk about your your business, right? So you you are the founder of NBM Aquatics. And before we get too deep into your business, I, I just have some initial questions, and I think people listening to this are, are curious as well. So what does NBM stand for in NBM Aquatics? Well, NBM has an interesting backstory. I grew up in a little to- uh, little township, if you will, in central Wisconsin called Nabob. And it was two bars, a church, and a cheese factory at one time, and a dozen or so kids that lived in the neighborhood. And the parents started referring to us as the Nabob mob. And that name has just kind of stuck with me, and I still spend a... You know, we get together once a month and play cards and, you know, have an annual gathering once a year of all the kids that I grew up with. And that Nabob mob and the mob meetings and stuff has just always been kind of a part of me and my friends and stuff like that. And partially because my original username on Aquabid was Nabob Mob 1. And I just kind of shrunk the Nabob mob down to NBM. Wait, uh, to simplify it a little so, bit. So are you telling me that there was a Nabob mob on Aquabid and you had to take yep. so, Wow. Yeah, my, I, I, in fact, Nabob mob one is my username on Planet Catfish. Last time I checked, I think it was fourth on the breeder board on Planet Catfish. Um, uh, so Nabob mob one is still a name you'll find around on some of the forums and stuff like that. And that is me. So did you ever find out who has Nabob Mob without the one? Um, one of my other buddies that I grew up with um, has it. And I think the one just kind of, we were in other stuff, to other forums and other, you know, gaming sites and stuff like that. Gotcha. So I I just stuck the one on everything, so I knew which one what my username was. <laughs> oh, gotcha, gotcha. All right, so one thing I do want to uh, point out here and, and um, give you some some praise for is your logo. So it's uh, what what species of Cory catfish am I looking at right now? I think it was just a conglomerate of several species. I don't even have the logo handy to look at it. Well, for um, for those listening, there was a there was a girl on. I mean, I would say that's probably just an Aeneas type uh, or a bronze quarry. Um, there was a girl on Aqua Boards, which was the forum associated with Aquabed, that was giving um, some of the more active users little character things, and that's what she gave me. 
Well, she did a fantastic job. So um, I will link in the show notes um, your your website and your Facebook page for NBM Aquatics, so people can come and check it out. But um, it is a like like you've kind of described a, an amalgamation Cory catfish. Um, so it's a Cory. He's got a little Tommy gun. He's got his little you know mobster fedora hat kind of tipped forward on his head, uh, and he's smoking a cigar. And he's definitely uh, he's a he's a mobster. He's a mobster Cory catfish with the slogan above him. I'm in the mob. So. Um, I'm, you know, I'm definitely appreciative of all the, uh, you know, kind of caricatures and cartoons. And, um, I think anytime you can take, um, whether it's, you know, business or any of your personal ventures and and you can add a little fun, uh, a fun identity or fun personality into it. Um, I'm always for that. And I, I always appreciate that. So, um, I would definitely encourage people to come and come and check out this, uh, cool piece of artwork that, uh, that, that forum member drew for you. Yeah, it, it is a lot of fun. I get complimented on it a lot. I've actually considered challenging some people to draw me up some new mob fish because um, I've done hats and polo shirts and everything else with this mob fish over the last six years or so, and maybe it's time for a redesign of the mob fish. Um, well, you know, I want I want to be on that voting panel because I think this little guy is I think he's pretty cool as he is. Um, I can appreciate you know changing things up a little bit, but I'd like to see if you know that's almost like a challenge to somebody else because I think this guy has done really really well. Yeah, he has, and people recognize the logo usually before they recognize my face because in the fall I usually grow on a beard and that takes me like four days and then I don't look like my Facebook picture anymore. So I walk through a swap or a show and people don't really recognize me till they see that logo on the back of my sweatshirt. <laughs> like, Oh, I thought, I, I thought that guy looked familiar. <laughs> All right. So let's, let's talk about uh, what do you have going on right now with NBM aquatics? Cause I mean, you know, people listening to this, me listening to listening to this, if I was somebody um, which, you know, I, I am, um, you know, maybe not right at this moment, but if there was a, a certain species of catfish or there was a certain species of, of Corydora, I mean, you are incredibly knowledgeable, um, and you've been doing this for, you know, a, a decade or maybe a little bit over a decade. Um, how do we, you know, uh, I guess not so much, how do we, but, uh, what do you have going on with your business? Uh, right now it's been on the slow side as far as reproduction and sales. Um, I really focus uh, exclusively for the most part on selling my offspring. And I moved, as I mentioned, in 18 months or so ago, and I went from Great Lakes water to a well. And there's been a lot of trials and tribulations to getting fish to spawn and getting them to hatch and getting fry to grow. Um, and some of it was the limited space and drawing up a new fish room. Um, it hasn't really been high on the priority list because I don't have room for the fish I have, much less a whole lot of offspring. So lately I've been going to a lot of the events and stuff on a social aspect. Um, I've been doing quite a bit of presentations. I'll be in uh, at the Michigan Cichlid Association May 4th giving my corridors presentation and then Madison and Milwaukee on the 18th and 19th or 17th and 18th that Friday, Saturday in May. And then in June, I'll be down in Louisville, Kentucky, uh, giving that same corridors talk. 
Oh, excellent. So, uh, you know, this, this transition for you, um, while, you know, you're, so your business is not, you know, you're not fully up and running. You're not, um, you know, producing the, the offspring necessary to, um, to really, you know, offer things out to the public. Um, is it, has it been kind of a nice break, I guess, you know, not that you didn't enjoy breeding, um, but has it been nice to get out there and, and meet other people and, and to speak and share your knowledge? It has. Um, it's definitely been nice, especially on the convention aspect, to go out to these conventions and not have to worry about hauling six boxes, seven boxes of fish with me and worrying about whether they get there okay and tending to a sales booth or a sales room for the duration of the convention and being able to just relax and go see some of the other presentations and speak with the others and not be confined to a sales area has definitely been kind of a nice break. Um, there's other times where it's just kind of when you're, you know, when you don't have anything new spawning and there's not much going on in the fish room, it kind of becomes way more of a chore to work on the fish tanks when all you're doing is sustaining, at least for me, um, you know, you're just sustaining 70 tanks and you're not really, you know, the fry are what get me excited. So without the fry, it's just kind of a constant chore. And I guess what what is your timeline again of where you think you'll be up and operational with your your fish room 4.0? Um, because like you had described, you know your auto water change system, you know just really being able to have that kind of turnkey um, turnkey on your maintenance. Uh, what's your timeline on that? Well, we've talked about it quite a bit, and uh, we're going to start working on that as soon as it's warm enough that, and we don't have to worry about brushing cars off. That I can start working in the garage. Uh, there was a lot of debate on, because I'm very hands-on, do-it-myself kind of guy. Um, so there's been a lot of debate back and forth about how much do I want to do, you know, watch YouTube videos to figure out how to do wiring or how to do this plumbing or how to cut concrete or how much do I want to do myself and how much do I want to pay somebody to come in and do it. And the reality is when you work full-time and you've got some of the aquariums, there's not that much spare time to kind of do all that stuff yourself. So we've been talking to some contractors and stuff about getting in here to start getting this thing done. My goal is to have that fish room up and running by the end of summer. Oh, awesome. And then I guess what would be a a conservative timeline of – uh, when people would be able to either go to your website or, you know, if you're still doing offerings on Aquabid, you know, would it be maybe another year after that or a few months after the end of the summer when, uh, you know, the N- N- NBM Aquatics offerings would be available again? Um, I'm hoping by midsummer. I am I am starting to breed some stuff with, with summer coming out that affords me the ability to move some stuff into outdoor tubs and stuff like that to free up some tanks to raise some fry up. I fired up my fry rack just a month and a half ago or so, which I can grow a fair amount of fish out in that single rack. Um, so I'm hoping to have some stuff available fairly soon. It may not be a lot, but I'm hoping to be able to start bartering with some stuff um, in the very near future. I'm hoping to have a few species to take out to the catfish convention in October. Um, just to help offset some of the cost of going all the way out to D.C. Yeah, definitely. That's awesome. Well, you know, I'll tell you what, um, I always say that this is kind of a fledgling podcast and 
um, you know, I'll, I'll do my part, you know, for, for you uh, offering to speak with me tonight and spend, you know, close to an hour talking with me about uh, catfish, Corydoras and, and plecos and your fish room plans. Um, whenever you are fully up and running, um, whatever I can do, you know, give me a shout out and I'll go ahead and uh, let people know in like a show opening that um, NBM Aquatics is open for business. Uh, so, you know, I'll, I'll keep that offer open to you. Excellent. Thank you very much. And if you're curious about what's going on, check out that Facebook page. Um, I'm always posting. I'm, I'm posting fairly regularly on there. Uh, random stuff. Last Sunday, for example, my Stereosoma Arum, which is the uh, one of the what they consider the royal farewell we're spawning. So I actually just set my phone up on Facebook Live on a tripod and went to the house and watch TV and let that stream live feed of uh, those fish spawning so there's always something going on on that facebook page um, whether i'm talking about what's going on in the fish room or showing what i'm going to be building or you know if a species is spawning and it's a reasonable hour of the day i'll just put the phone up on a tripod and let it run Oh, wow. That's very cool. And, uh, you know, is it, is it safe to ask you like, Hey, if somebody has a, you know, they're trying to breed some quarries or some catfish and they just need some advice. Is, is it safe to say that they can reach out to you, um, via Facebook and, and ask their question? Absolutely. I, I encourage people to ask questions. Um, and people need to ask a lot of questions, but they also need to be very careful with Facebook because there's a lot of, um, blind leading the blind, if you will. Um, so don't take the first answer you always get when you post on some of these fish pages as uh, gospel. Um, but yeah, I'm always open to help, um, problem solve or give advice of any kind. Yeah. I can tell you what, if anybody asks me about advice on corridors or catfish in general, I'm going to point them straight to you. All right. And I'll pro- if I can't help, I'll find someone who can. Um, since we focus tonight primarily on corridors, there is a U.S. Cory Keeper page that has a collection of some of the top breeders in the U.S. and across the globe um, at, active regularly on the U.S. Cory Keeper page. Awesome. Is that page a, a Facebook page? Yes. All right. So we'll make sure that we put a link to uh, your Facebook page, your uh uh, business website as well as that Facebook page as well in the show notes so somebody doesn't have to hit rewind and try to write that down we'll have that available as a, as a link to them in the show notes so Matt I would say you know thank you very much for uh, taking time out of your evening to talk with me about catfish and quarries and um, you know your start and, and what you've got going on uh, with your um, you know all of the awesome breeding that you're doing and uh, fantastic to hear that you're getting a little bit of a break. You're getting out there and, and meeting new people and you're, and you're able to just share this, all of this knowledge that you have, um, you know, through fish club talks and conventions. So again, what I always like to plug is, you know, if you're not already a member of your local fish club, get out there, join one. Um, and hopefully, hopefully our paths cross in the future at one of these shows and I'm able to uh, shake your hand and thank you in person. That would be fantastic. I really enjoyed it. Awesome, Matt. Thank you very much. You have a good night. Thank you. You too. Thank you again for listening to the Aquarius Podcast. As always, get involved in your local fish club, help grow this wonderful hobby, and have fun with other fish nerds.